everybody, welcome back. This is my second self and I. I'm Matt, your beloved goofy host. And the other echoey voice that might pop in from time to time is Alex. He's kind of the co-host. He's supposed to help keep me on track. That's me. Hi, everybody. Hope everybody still has all ten of their fingers and toes after the 4th of July holiday. If you don't, maybe keep this on while you're recovering in the hospital. You know, they say laughter is the best medicine, and this show is free. So hey, that's two of the best things ever in life, all right here, for you. Thank you, everybody, who had a chance to listen to last week's episode on the Narco-Satanists. I could have gone on for several more hours on that, probably. There was a lot of stuff I just didn't have time to go that deep into. Today, we're going to be talking about a completely different kind of murderer. If you did listen last week, you might remember at the end me saying some stuff about my inability to see women as hurtful or dangerous. That's pretty much been worked all the way out now after reading this story. Granted, it is much less common to read about or hear about. Women can be just as hurtful and dangerous. And you'd think, after a year of crime-based podcasting, I would have already had that pretty well cemented in my brain, but, you know, that's the entire point of this show. We're real with ourselves, and we learn as we go. And I ask myself a lot of questions while doing the research for this episode. How can one person present such a drastic disconnect between their own internal beliefs and the rest of the world? How can the people around that person be so willing to tolerate their behavior? And most importantly, how did any of this happen? Yes, I'm aware I just gave you a list of rhetorical questions, but through the use of rhetoric, I think we can actually provide a sort of answer for that today. And also, this person is a dangerous sociopath with a strong sense of cognitive dissonance. The rest of the world is wrong. Only I am right. Only the stuff inside my head is accurate. Everything else is completely made up garbage bullshittery. So what are we talking about today? Nurses! One nurse in particular, a woman named Janine Jones. During the course of her employment in the medical field in two different practices and made possible by the higher-ups in the hospital staff, Janine Jones faced eight separate criminal charges, one for the death of a little girl named Chelsea McClellan, as well as seven other indictments for, quote, intentionally and knowingly injuring the children by injecting with, bear with me, succinocholine or some other drug. However, she may have killed up to 60 children and babies. That's too many. She also has a lot of quotes that really speak to her character as a person, which are also completely made-up garbage bullshittery. She is an overall general pain in the ass to be near, and she's also an asshole about it. To clarify, I mean that her quotes are overinflated lies or half-truths to protect herself or make herself look more genuine, not that I made them up. I only make up those crazy fake ads or commercials and the occasional comedic misdirection, but I usually tell you about those anyway. And I'd love to tell you all about those things, but first, there's something else I should tell you. You should probably already know if you've been listening and by my tone of voice, but if you're new here, guess what? This is a comedy show. I'm going to make jokes. My energy is going to be chaotic at times. I swear a lot. And there might be one or two fake commercials or ads that I put in just to give us a little break every now and then. This is supposed to be a fun show. It doesn't have to be leaving feeling gross. I know, I know what's funny about babies dying. Nothing! That's the point. There's absolutely nothing funny about babies or children or anybody dying, for that matter. The funny part, the part that makes you scratch your head, is when people think they can get away with this shit. Particularly in the nursing field, which is extremely heavily regulated with tons and tons of checks and balances and logs and reports to make sure that what happened in today's story doesn't happen... And yet it still did. How do you get from A to B to X? That's where the funny stuff is. The in-between. The things people do. The things they say. The reasons they give. The truest parts of the story are oftentimes the parts where the most potential for comedy lies. Those are the kinds of things I'm talking about when I say it's a comedy show. Probably not going to be making fun of dead babies or other people. 
even though I have a fucked up sense of humor and dead baby jokes <laughs> really do make me laugh, I'm just going to stay in the other lane today with the asshole nurse we're going to be talking about. There's plenty of other material to work with over there. So if you're still here, you're still on board, how about you set yourself up with whatever thing it is you do that you like to do to relax and let me tell you a story about the worst excuse for a nurse in the world, or at least one of them. It's time to go work the 3 to 11 death shift with Janine Jones. Let's go, everybody. So Janine Jones has a lot of layers to her as a person. None of them are particularly desirable either. She's frequently quoted as being aggressive, overbearing, rude, a know-it-all, just a general pain in the ass to be around, whether it be as co-workers or otherwise. I've worked in food service and retail for the better part of about 20 years now, and I've interacted with this specific flavor of personality more times than I can count, and I'm certain many of you as well. Seems to also be pretty common in some of the louder religious and political circles you see around the country, so I'd be willing to bet a lot of you have somebody you know right now in mind with some of these tendencies. Have you ever been walking through the store and saw a sign that says, buy one, get one, half off? Well, Janine saw it, but she only read the half off part, and now it's the cashier's fault for ringing it up wrong. And when the cashier says, well, you have to buy one at full price to get the other one half off, suddenly it's false advertising. I don't know why the cashier sounds like that. Or maybe you've been behind that person at the checkout because they're going to make it everybody else's fucking problem and hold the line up. Other waiters, remember that one dickhead or that dumb bitch that definitely ordered the chicken? But when you got to the table with the chicken, they've decided since then that, um, I ordered steak. As if you're magically supposed to know that when they said chicken, they meant to say steak, and now you're a terrible waiter, and how hard is your job, and you know how much money I make in a year, you little asshole? And now nobody else at the table is going to say anything about them to their behavior? That's Janine. She's that person. And just like that table at the restaurant, she somehow has people on her side throughout this story, despite all the glaring evidence to the contrary. This week, I think the best way to set everything up is to introduce the main characters ahead of time, that way we can get acquainted with everybody's mannerisms and personalities and attitudes. Context for this is pretty evident once we get into it, but knowing who we're going to be talking about ahead of time will make it easier to follow along. Instead of having to stop every 10 minutes with, hey, here's another new person, hope you're paying attention, because I know you're not. Not perfectly. And that's okay. I do that too. Especially with reading. I'll be reading through stuff, but my brain is elsewhere. It could be an article about ritualistic murder and sacrifices like last week, and my eyes will be moving like I'm reading, but inside it's just the Taco Bell dog flying a submarine around by Jupiter. I'm impressed with myself every time I can actually get anything done. I can read for hours and fucking absorb none of it. But you probably knew that though. We've been together over a year now. And I'm fairly certain my target audience has that same issue to, you know, some degree. And for the first target for my audience today is, of course, Janine Jones. So let's talk about how she ended up working in the hospital. Wow, you really nailed that segue. By all accounts, Janine had a really good life and upbringing. She was born on July 13th, 1950, so she's 72. Same age and almost day as me, except mine is on the 15th. She, along with three other children, were adopted. Her father was a hard worker and a shrewd businessman at that. In Janine's early life, he purchased a new business, a combination that I've never heard of before, I don't think, a swim club by day and a nightclub by night. The Kit Kat Swim Club was where Janine's parents spent most of their time. Richard, old daddy dick, spent a lot of time with Janine painting the billboards around town or doing other advertisements for the club, while Mama Gladys was the DJ at the pub. 
was the DJ at the club spinning records. Perfectly executed. Which Janine absolutely loved. She says, we just had a ball together. She would end up adopting a lot of her father's mannerisms too. He didn't take a lot of shit from other people. Based on his description, a six foot tall, 240 pound bald man, I'm kind of imagining Kingpin from Daredevil or like the Southern dad version of Michael Chiklis. Just a big fucking pointy headed bald guy probably rocking a goatee or a boss standalone who can and will kick your ass, but he'd rather do business with you instead. I don't know anything else about Mama G, except that she's a competent DJ. The club seems to have done pretty good for a while too. And so did Janine for a while, but around high school time she starts developing her personality that we'll see later on. She was working often in the library at her high school and was kind of a bossy kid. If other kids weren't working the way they were supposed to, she'd just tell them what to do. She was that boring goody two-shoes, have-to-get-good-grades-what-even-is-fun girl that we all went to high school with. You guys are having fun the wrong way and you're doing it wrong! Shut the fuck up! Remember that girl? Or that guy? Ugh. Those people were so annoying. She takes herself way too seriously, a little bit too literally, and she doesn't know how to have fun. And she also doesn't talk like how a normal person talks, we'll see later on. She uses exceptionally dramatic speech to try to convince people that she's right. The more intelligent I sound, the more likely they are to believe this lie that I'm making up for attention. And the more syllables I use in my everyday speech, the longer people have to stay and listen to what I have to say, which they're going to because I'll force them to, and they'll fucking settle in because I also have a lot to say. Ugh. This personality type even exists. is so annoying, let alone that it's applied to a medical, pro quote, professional today. Things for Janine were going pretty well up until high school graduation. On top of developing a shitty personality, she also lost several family members before she was even 18. Old Dick Daddy died of cancer in 1968, one of her brothers also died of cancer before that, and one of her other brothers died in a way that we haven't yet seen on this show, I don't think. He died in an explosion that was caused by a bomb that he made himself when he was only 16. What the fuck? Holy shit, really? What kind of bomb was it? doesn't say, but I'd have to imagine maybe a pipe bomb or maybe a sparkler bomb. I don't know. I'm not going to Google what kind of bombs a 16-year-old can make, though, because I don't want to get flagged by the FBI. After graduation, Janine marries her high school sweetheart, as so many people did back then, and as with so many others, it was a long-winded, strained marriage that was doomed to fail from the beginning. Don't marry your high school sweetheart. You don't even really know yourself by then, let alone who you want to spend the rest of your life with. High school sweetheart marriers, let me know how it's going for you in the YouTube comments. And did you know, by the way, you can listen to this show on YouTube? It is only audio, but it would allow you to comment and or interact with me. I'm just super saying she also marries a guy, James Harvey Delaney Jr. in 1968. That's the high school sweetheart. Went to beauty school, got a job in the beauty parlor at the hospital. Then her husband gets drafted into the Navy, they move to Georgia, and her son Michael is born. I wrote, she, her son Michael is born. <laughs> they move back to San Antonio shortly thereafter, and the next five years would be spent in court dealing with divorce proceedings. This is what I mean when I said that she uses dramatic speech. She filed for a divorce saying her husband was, quote, a man of violent and ungovernable temper and passion, and on several occasions had, quote, struck her with great force. People don't talk like that. If you got your ass kicked in any kind of setting, you wouldn't go around saying that they had an ungovernable and violent temper and passion. You'd say, that person beat the shit out of me for no goddamn reason, that motherfucker is crazy. Not that they struck me with great force. Maybe he was abusive, maybe he wasn't. 
I don't know, but a lot of times when people over-enunciate and use dramatic language like that, it's a pretty good indication that they're trying to convince somebody they're telling the truth. Otherwise, they would just speak plainly and tell the truth. Yeah, he beat the shit out of me and punched holes in the walls. Check out this black eye and arm cast. Then two months later, they were totally fine. No more divorce. Then the final breakup was in 1974. But wait, there's still more. She still needs more attention from this guy, and you still need to pay me more child support. Then in March 1977, they finally decide to drop all the legal bullshittery for good. And a few months later after that, on July 17th, also almost my birthday, her daughter Heather is born. There really is no love like toxic codependency. Janine claims that Heather's real father is some dead guy named Ron English, as perfectly a made-up name as I've ever heard, but she would later go on to tell Dr. Kathy Holland that her father is actually James. We'll catch up with who she is in just a minute here. Janine also attended nursing school that year in the San Antonio Independent School District School of Vocational Nursing, long title, and passed her LVN exam with more than 200 points above a passing grade. She then got a job in the hospital as an LVN, but was asked to resign after about eight months. She claims... I had a conflict with the doctor. It was a lack of feeling on the physician's part toward the patient, and I stood up for the patient, and he didn't like that. They asked me to resign. The absolutely massive balls on this woman to be telling a doctor how to do his doctor job after only being out of nursing school for eight months. But that doctor is a mean asshole. There's no way he should be treating patients like that. Trust me, I'm a nurse, and I know. I just graduated from the first stage of nursing school, so I know better than doctors because it's still fresh. Also, resigning after being asked to resign seems almost like an admission of guilt to me. And how she didn't actually say anything happened, just that there was a disagreement, also seems fishy. She bounces around different hospital jobs for a little while until finally landing in a position at the ICU in the Bexar County Medical Hospital in October 1978. And we'll catch up with Janine and what she's doing in there in just a little bit. But I want to introduce you to a couple other people first. Right after this word from a totally legitimate advertising partner. Hello again. I am, of course, Minerva Minutia, leader of the Zardakians, the people chosen by Zardak to welcome his return and revel in the wake of his destructive power. He is bequeathed unto me and only me, a relic of great importance an ancient device that resonates with naturally occurring frequencies in normal human speech and can alter them to produce an entirely new sound. For example, when I speak normally, I sound like this. But when I speak through the Voxatron, I can sound like this! Or like this! Or like this. This powerful artifact will make it easier for me to reach more of our chosen people who may yet be wandering in the darkness of not knowing their fate. Do not be alarmed at the new language coming out of this temple. As times change, we must evolve with them in order to secure our place in the universe. What was written can be rewritten. That is the way of Zardok. We will carve our own space in history. And I owe it all, I mean we owe it all, to Zardok and his gift of the Voxatron. Go forth and spread the word. Zardok awaits. That was a continuation of a bit from last week. If you want to know more about Zardok, go listen to that one and then come back. Or just wait till this is over and then go listen. It'll be there. So who is Dr. Kathy Holland? She would wind up being one of Janine's closest allies through this story. 
She was the daughter of factory workers and grew up in Albany, New York. Her father also died when she was in her junior year of high school, very close to Janine's situation, and she ended up dropping out after her dad died, but did eventually graduate after being forced to go back. She worked as a clerk typist in the public library and hadn't really given college much thought until she met a librarian named Larry Doyle. Another Larry, oh boy. We've had way too many Larrys on this show lately. This one seems to be pretty okay though. He's about 12 years older than Kathy and pretty demanding, but he does eventually get her back into college courses. After some time, they moved to Tucson, where Kathy enrolled at the University of Arizona as a bio major. Woo! Then Larry gets a pretty good job up in Cornell University, back in New York, where Kathy also attended for her undergraduate degree. Then we're going back down south to San Antonio now. The vet school at Cornell turned her application down twice, so she, so she instead decided, there we go, to fucking focus on human medicine. I am on a roll with fucking talking today. Holy shit. She attended the UT Health Science Center in 1974, working towards a PhD in anatomy and a medical degree, and her third year rotations at the Bexar County Hospital was what made her focus on pediatrics. Also, where she meets Janine. Unfortunately, all was not as well at home as it was in Kathy's education. She and Larry finalized a divorce in July 1979. Why is so much always going on in July? That's three different times just in this episode. But she'd already moved in with another man by then, Charlie Appling, C-H-A-R-L-E-I-G-H, who was a retired Air Force colonel. That spelling is... I've never seen Charlie spelled that way before. It didn't take her long to decide during her residency at Bexar County to decide that she wanted to open up a private practice. She figured out that Kerrville's growing population was in desperate need of pediatric specialists. A growing population of over 15,000 with more and more young people moving in and only one pediatrician's office? Sounds like they need Dr. Holland. The only problem is that she couldn't find any suitable nurses to accompany her to her own practice. She'd been looking for a competent nurse that could run pediatric IVs, but a lot of the nurses there weren't comfortable with it. She did have one person in mind, Pam Sturm, but Pam said, You can't afford me! Which was $8.35 an hour. You need an LVN. They only make about $5 an hour. First of all, calm down, Pam. You make $8 an hour. Second of all, you don't think a competent doctor can afford an extra $120 a week for an equally competent nurse? Come on. And maybe she really couldn't afford it at first when opening up a private business, but that should just be the cost of doing business. You should be expected to pay your good employees at least what they're actually worth, if not more. Especially when it comes to human lives, and kids' lives at that. And it's her interaction with Pam that brings her around to meeting Janine in 1981, but there's one more ally to Janine that I want to very briefly discuss, and then I can tell you what actually happened. Dr. James Robotham, spelled R-O-B-O-T-H-M, so I'm just going to call him Robotham, and he and Janine's relationship seemed pretty natural, almost like there was no effort needed that needed to be put into it. Robotham was made the medical director of Bexar County in March 1980, after coming down from Johns Hopkins. Before that, he trained in pediatric ICU in Toronto. He was a brilliant, compulsive, volatile, and demanding man that, for better or worse, made an impression on everybody in Bexar County. Being that it's a teaching hospital, early morning reviews on patient conditions and treatment plans were not uncommon. Except, many of the residents and nurses there were used to going into just the briefest of details and descriptions about their patients, until Robotham became the medical director. He'd shifted much of the responsibility off the nurses and others and onto himself, but he'd still pull every little bit of information he could out of you. He'd say things like, 
What were the lab results? What do they mean? Why do you say that? Are you sure? You don't know. Don't you think it's important to know? That kind of needling with pointed questions really leaves a mark on other people, but he also does have the medical knowledge to back it up. And if anybody's gonna take themselves that seriously like that, I kinda want it to be the child doctor who can back his shit up. Maybe it is a little bit aggressive and condescending, but if his nurses aren't taking people seriously, if they aren't taking themselves seriously or their job seriously, people could die. So, kinda don't mind that approach there. And Janine especially loved that approach. Her entire life up to this point was spent knowing that she was doing the things the right way and that everybody else was wrong and she'd bullied her way into getting Robotham to think the same way about her, so what the fuck did she actually do? Well, for the first three months she worked at Bexar County, she was on the overnight shift working 11 to 7, and then she made the switch to 3 to 11. The workspace at the hospital is not very large, but it did have a small break area behind it where nurses could sit and chill for a little while in between rounds and tests, and her initial reaction to even being on the pediatric floor was, as she puts it, quote, Stark raving fear. Again, who talks like that? And she goes on to say, quote, The first baby I ever took care of was a preemie with a dying gut. I picked that kid up and knew I was going to stay. One of her co-workers thought differently, though. Apparently, Janine exhibited some pretty strange behavior after this child had died. It had an often fatal intestinal disease called necrotizing enterocolitis, which sounds like one of the scariest fucking things ever. Uh, you know, hold on, let me, let me look this up. Hold on, I forgot. Oh my god, wow, holy shit, is it horrible. It's an infant's inability to keep out dangerous bacteria which inflames the gut and basically causes it to destroy itself. Good god. And what's worse is that it's almost exclusive to the infant demographic. Jesus. And after that child had died, Janine, quote, just went berserk, according to another co-worker. She'd break into loud wails and sobbing and crying, and she just placed a stool in the room next to the child and just stared at the body for a little while. She would also do similar things when other patients that weren't hers died too. She did it for all of them. Everybody processes death differently, I guess, is what I want to say, but I don't think that's the case here. In this hospital at least, and probably others, the nurses would spend most of their shift with maybe one or two patients. Patients in the ICU were usually of the tinier variety, and the nurses were the only thing standing between them and death. And of course, the professional relationship between a nurse and patient is important for the patient's health, but I think a nurse is also supposed to try to remain emotionally distant to some degree. I think Janine just wanted to find a way to somehow make it about her. If the patient dies, then she isn't a hero to anyone anymore, and no one needs her for anything. She acted that way because if she did, then people would pay more attention to her than the literal baby that just died. So we're not off to a great start. She's already showing signs that maybe this isn't the right job for her. Maybe nursing isn't for Janine. And despite that first incident, she progresses fairly well at first, taking pride in doing her job the right way and following regulations and procedures to a T and digging through Pam Sturm's books to find the right answers if she didn't already know it. Which, when compared to other LVNs, she often did. She was exceptionally inquisitive, and her technical skills were almost unmatched. Pam said about her, She understood anatomy and physiology that was on a higher level than a lot of other LVNs. But her real skill set was in placing IV lines into patients. Nobody on the floor could run an IV like Janine. 
which is an insanely good skill to have in a hospital or a vet clinic. I've had nurses miss the mark on me before, and getting stabbed more than once is not fun. I get it though. Veins move around under the skin, and some people are just better at different things. Doesn't make that nurse a bad nurse, just that they could, you know, probably use some extra practice or training. And being able to, quote, run an IV on a friggin' fly made Janine look, quote, like probably the most competent nurse there. Alright, I want you to hold on to all that. Janine is really, really, really good at placing IV lines, and she's, as of this moment, competent. Her co-workers maintained that thought about her for about a year until her personality started to shine through a little bit more. Openly talking shit about other nurses and doctors, the way they cared for their patients, the hospital itself, Janine didn't give a shit and voiced her strong opinions openly. And not just about other people, but herself too, loudly swearing in the halls, talking about sex or who her next lay was gonna be. Now don't get me wrong, I love a horny nurse just as much as the next guy. And they serve an important purpose in society, maybe on a greater scale than a regular nurse. I mean, they save lives, they make hospital stays more bearable. Shit, the whole concept of them generates revenue for a variety of different businesses other than hospitals. They're one of the greatest assets to the economy, really. But your co-workers don't want to hear about that nonsense, Janine. The hallway and patient's rooms within earshot of your co-workers is not an appropriate place. If you want to discuss this matter away from co-workers, my office is right down the hall and my hours are from 2 to 4. But seriously, she was laying it on way too thick with all the attention-grabbing things she would do like that. Screaming about sex is bad enough, but she'd also just make up any little reason to call someone over and check her work. She'd see problems in patients that just weren't there or that nobody else could see. It's because I'm so much better than you and more right than you are. To the point that she quickly became a burden on exhausted doctors and other residents. One resident, who now works in a private practice, said, quote, She'd always call you for crap. After a while, you'd be tired of going over there. Any little thing, she'd be calling you two, three, four times as much as anybody else. She wanted a lot of attention. After a while, you'd think she was a pain in the ass. And it didn't stop there. She would challenge every single decision at every level. Medications, treatments, diagnoses, dosages, everything. She'd start with the interns and work her way up until somebody listened to her. And if they didn't, she'd say things like, This kid's going to die if you don't do this. Her presence in the ICU has become toxic to say the least. I'm always right, you're always wrong, even though you're a doctor and I'm the only person who can see any kind of signs pointing to this other horrible thing that's definitely going to happen if you don't listen to me about this patient. By the way, is that guy single over there? He looks like a snack! Janine! Office hours! Jesus, Janine, he just told you. Janine very quickly alienated herself to pretty much everybody in the ICU except for Robotham. Their over-aggressive personalities meshed pretty well together at first. Until May 21st, 1981, that is. Chris Hogita was the first of 10 patients to die in 1981 and was the first of them that sparked a peculiar interest in the rest of the staff. A 15-month-old with a severe congenital heart defect who had been at Bexar County since December had developed hepatitis, the infection spread throughout his body, his heart began beating irregularly, and he died of cardiac arrest. Janine lost her shit. He was my boy! She waited in his room until the parents got there, which she did at their request. She'd made friends with them over the course of his stay. While waiting for the parents, Janine said, quote, I would bathe the children and I would sing to them while I bathed them. If that sounds insane, then tough shit. If you can't die with dignity, why live with dignity? 
We talk to them even after death. We're not God. We don't know when the spirit leaves the body. There's that aggressive personality coming out again. That was a switch in the middle of the sentence there. Jesus, Janine, calm down. And she would exhibit this kind of behavior for every patient that died, whether under her care or someone else's. And maybe that really is just her way of coping with death in the workplace. Until you start noticing patterns. The other nine children that died in the ICU that year were all listed as, quote, unexpected events, many of which nurses and other ICU staff remember as being non-fatal. Is it just a coincidence, though? You might think that until they become so frequent that it was happening almost every day. Patients were dying for what looked like literally no reason. There were things that kids were being admitted for that were in the past proven to be a non-fatal issue, and other staff were starting to notice. Tony Grosshopt said, quote, I'd leave a patient I thought was stable. She'd come on, and I'd find out that the patient had a bad spell, had seizures or codes, and that happened consistently. Another nurse, Patty Alberti, the same nurse that said Janine was the most competent nurse she'd ever seen, said she'd come in several times for an 11 to 7 overnight shift for a patient that she'd cared for the night before that had died. I'd struggle with it for 8 hours, and then the kid was still alive. The day shift had it for 8 hours, and it was still alive. But then Janine comes on 3 hours into her shift, and the kid was dead. But is it really just a coincidence? Pat Belko, head nurse of the ICU, had heard the rumors and suspicions floating around, but she also knew that a lot of the people talking just really didn't like Janine, so she kind of didn't know what to do. She eventually told them to either document their suspicions or to stop talking like that altogether. She says, It was real hard to think that somebody who seemed to care so much about her patients and get along so well with families would be doing something of this nature. Then in September, Janine says something that really should have been much more of an eye-opener than it was for people. Another one of her patients had died, and she says, quote, Why do babies always die when I'm around? As if she's acknowledging that she's the common denominator in all the deaths and near-deaths that have been ravaging the hospital for this entire year up to then. That is a great question, Janine. Why do you think babies always die when you're around? Then in October, it really starts coming together. Jose Antonio Flores, six months and three days old, was admitted on October 6th for vomiting, fever, and diarrhea. Standard six-month-old stuff. Happens all the time. Then on the third day, something that doesn't happen all the time, he developed seizures. Where did he develop them? In the pediatric ward. He was taken to the basement for a brain scan where he went into cardiac arrest, was revived, and returned to the ICU where he began bleeding uncontrollably. They tried for 52 minutes to revive him, but were unsuccessful. The cause of the bleeding was unknown, and there was no autopsy, but records do say that Janine was present for the brain scan. And for every other, quote, unexpected event that happened that year. Another nurse, Suzanne Maldonado, was the first to notice that every single one of the patients who died that year were under the care of Janine Jones. She told all of that to Pat Belko, and now it's Pat's turn to convince Robotham to launch an investigation. The first of Robotham's concerns was a drug called heparin, an anticoagulant. Several of the children admitted had developed bleeding problems in the ICU. It would leak out of old puncture sites, sutures, mouths, rectums, bleeding from literally anywhere until the patient's heart pressure suddenly tanks. The other concern was that it was happening much too frequently. The only explanation he could put towards it was disseminated intravascular coagulation, a severe infection that causes blood not to clot and it was happening way too much. So until he could figure it out, he ordered extra scrutiny surrounding the administration of the drug. 
Nurses had to have a second nurse witness them as they drew it and initial as a witness. Robotham then informs the chairman of the pediatrics department for the UT Health Sciences Center about everything going on, and they launch a full-scale investigation into whether or not these deaths are DIC or a heparin overdose. Nurses are also instructed to draw an extra blood sample any time a child develops an unexpected problem. Meanwhile, on December 22nd, another child died under almost the exact same circumstances as the others. Dorelia Rios, 25 months old, had been admitted numerous times for gastrointestinal surgeries. She was given fluids for dehydration and antibiotics to fight the infection, but suffered a fatal cardiac arrest, with Janine's name attached to the file, along with a note from Janine that said, A legend in her own time. Merry Christmas, Dora. I love you. Jones, LVN. Early in January, the initial results of the investigation turned up no evidence of any wrongdoing, until Rolando Santos was admitted. He came in on December 27th at four weeks old with pneumonia and breathing problems, so they placed him on a respirator. Three days later, on the 30th, he started having seizures, but they couldn't figure out why. Then he also goes into cardiac arrest and is revived. January 1st, his blood pressure drops again, and he begins bleeding uncontrollably, which was fortunately stopped. Until January 6th, where it started again, but this time they were ready. Dr. Ken Copeland ordered lab tests to see if it was heparin, and bingo, bango, we got a match. Confirmed documentation of a heparin overdose in the ICU. But also good news, he did survive. After Ken told the ICU nurses to get him out of the ICU and move him into the main floor, he went home about four days later. The investigation is still mostly at a standstill, though. While they do have documented evidence of a heparin overdose, they still can't positively tie it to a single employee. It's not until almost a whole month later and after another child dies that the hospital makes any kind of decision, and it's kind of not even really a decision. They determined that it was just a matter of poor leadership in the pediatrics department and that the nurses were just having a big cat fight with each other. So even though they had a ton of circumstantial evidence pointing to Janine for all the deaths, the legal team decided to just stay quiet and continue the investigation internally, whatever the hell that means. They didn't want to give Janine any legal ground to stand on if they fired her for anything and they were wrong. So instead of contacting the DA or the police or anything helpful like that, the higher-ups at the hospital decided the best course of action is to just sit back and see what happens. Fortunately for them, Janine is pretty much resigned to her fate by now, and she'll be gone very soon. She's pretty vocal about everything going on as well, which should surprise nobody. They're out to hang me! They might as well just let me go! She even said to Robotham, Just what the hell's going on? Do you think I'm doing something to the kids? And Robotham just says, Yeah. Then the next day, she tried out a different way of getting his attention. She tells Robotham again, This unit is my life. If you try to take me away from this unit, I have my black book with the names of every kid who's died in the unit and the doctor who caused the death. A weird thing to claim to have and an even more convenient deflection. I can prove that someone else killed those kids with my own evidence that I also wrote myself. It's bulletproof. And the investigation basically just waffled around like that until March, and the only decisions they actually made were to dissolve the ICU temporarily and restaff with only registered nurses, relieve Pat Belko and Robotham of their positions, and to offer the current ICU staff new jobs in other areas of the hospital, including Janine, who received high praise and recommendation. Fucking what? As you might imagine, this decision was met with tears and screams from the nursing staff. But don't worry, Janine's here to save the day. She said, if you want a scapegoat, take me. 
We know you just want to get rid of me. Just let me go and let the others stay. And I have to say again, that really almost sounds like an admission of guilt. And it's also saying, look at me. I'm volunteering to take sole responsibility and punishment. Why would I do that? If I volunteer to take a lie detector test, no way they'll think I'm the murderer. Oh, so you'll say you'll pass a lie detector test. Okay. I mean, if you say you'll pass, then you'll probably pass. No, 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 no. No need to come down to the station. You know yourself better than anyone else. You have a good day now. I swear that has to be at least part of what she's thinking when she says shit like that. And shortly after all that, she would leave the Bexar County Hospital to go work for Dr. Holland. We'll get there in just a second. And wouldn't you know it, soon as Janine leaves the hospital, all the weird unexpected emergencies and baby deaths just suddenly stopped. We're going to fast forward a little bit to August of 1982 when Dr. Holland opens the clinic. She had her suspicions on even hiring Janine. But Janine basically decided for herself that she was going to work with her, and Kathy just kind of went with it because, well, she needed a nurse. And almost immediately after opening, the same types of issues start right back up again. A little girl named Chelsea McClellan was admitted to Dr. Holland's clinic for erratic breathing. She experienced similar types of breath-holding spells before at different hospital, and was treated for pneumonia, but tests didn't show anything to indicate seizures or otherwise any kind of breathing disorder. Dr. Holland's secretary, Gwen, told her that Chelsea's mother was worried about the erratic breathing and that when Chelsea arrived, her lips were sort of blue. But her parents never said anything like that. Her mom said, There wasn't a damn thing blue about her except her eyes. Then Janine comes in to assist and takes Chelsea away to the treatment room, and five minutes later, she calls for Dr. Holland, Would you come over here? And now Chelsea has a respiratory mask hooked up to her face and all sorts of tubes and IVs coming and going, and now Dr. Holland has to tell the parents, Your daughter just had a seizure. They took Chelsea to the emergency room, Holland and Janine, and she recovered fully on her own and was sent home nine days later. Nothing to explain about the seizures or any breathing problems in any of the tests that they were performing. That was on Tuesday the 24th. Next is on Friday, August 27th with Brandy Lee Benitez. Rather, rinse, repeat. Brandy is admitted for generally normal non-threatening symptoms and is suddenly rushed to the hospital for seizures and breathing problems. She recovered six days later after her tests also showed nothing conclusive as to why she had those symptoms. Monday, August 30th, moving right along, Christopher Parker and Jimmy Pearsons run into the same issues while being treated by Janine. Here's another thing, once they get to the emergency room and are left alone, away from Janine, all these kids end up being totally fine and recovering on their own. But Janine and Holland eventually convinced the ER staff to transfer Chris and Jimmy both to the Santa Rosa Hospital by helicopter, and Janine once again finds herself in the middle of some kind of medical drama only she can see. She gets out of her seat while mid-flight, looks at Jimmy, and just decides that he's seizing. No indication whatsoever from the monitors, the kid is totally fine otherwise. I mean, he had other stuff going on, but he was doing fine without Janine's help. He wasn't even one of their clinic's patients, he just happened to show up at the same ER as Chris and they took him along with them. But Janine is certain that Jimmy has begun seizing and whips out her testoscope, and to the confusion of the pilots, what the hell are you doing over there? They keep shouting at her to sit back down and she waves them off until eventually she whips out a syringe and shouts loud enough for them to hear, Sir, mark time! She whips out the syringe to start injecting him with something, and within moments, his heart starts beating irregularly, and his face starts turning blue. They had to perform an emergency landing to get a respiratory bag on him, and this kid somehow just barely clung to life as they rushed him over to a hospital where he stabilized. 
He did eventually recover enough to go back home to Kerrville, but while there, his condition slowly worsened and was eventually transferred back to Santa Rosa Hospital where he died. If you ask Janine what happened though, she has a completely different telling of the story. She says Jimmy turned black and that the pilots were full of shit. They didn't even want to look at Jimmy. They couldn't stand to look at Jimmy. He kept telling me, what's the point of putting in a breathing tube? Just let the kid die. Really have a hard time believing that that happened. I... no. Nuh-uh. Once again, Janine has an answer for this, and it's that somebody else is at fault. Nothing is ever her fault. Have I said that before? Have I mentioned that Janine is always right about everything? Almost done, but not quite. Friday, September 3rd, we have Misty Reichenau. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. I'm sorry, I'm probably not. Her part in this story is sadly no different from any of the other ones. Admitted for normal stuff, rushed to the ER for breathing problems and seizures. And the last straw to break the camel's back comes back around to Chelsea McClellan, once again on Friday, September 17th. She wasn't even really sick when she came back in. This was just supposed to be a routine checkup. Janine just had to intervene and proceeded to do the exact same thing she had done to almost every other patient that walked through those doors. And this time it was in front of the mother. As Chelsea's mom is holding her, Janine injects her with something into her thigh and immediately starts having trouble breathing and all the other symptoms I've mentioned before. They rush her to the hospital in an ambulance, but on the way she flatlines. After reaching the hospital, they try for 20 minutes to revive her, but it's too late. And if that wasn't enough for you, it certainly wasn't enough for Janine, because that same day, three hours after Chelsea had passed, another patient was brought into Dr. Holland's clinic. Jacob Evans would survive his encounter with Janine, but it doesn't make it any less terrifying. He went through the exact same scenario as all the others. And I think the last person to be treated by Janine was Rolinda Ruff, who came in on September 30th. That's where the new names stop in my sources here, and I think that's the last one. And by then, the heat was already on for Janine, and she didn't even know it. The clinic had been open for barely two months. Over the next eight months of the investigation, it's all but concluded that Janine for sure had something to do with all the baby deaths. Dr. Holland fires her, she attempts suicide, is revived, moves in with Chris Hogita's parents, remember they were friends before this? They didn't know at the time that she was responsible. And she is finally arrested on May 25th over in Odessa while visiting her husband's relatives. Yeah, by the way, she's still married throughout all this, but I'm not so sure. The thing that sealed it for her was whenever they exhumed Chelsea's body. You see, she'd been injecting the kids with anectine, or succinocholine, I think I'm saying that one right at least, which kind of acts as a paralyzing agent and generally requires intubation to use, and Chelsea's body showed clear signs that it had been used. When they found the vials in Dr. Holland's office that appeared full, except for that the stopper on top was poked full of syringe holes, it was later determined that they had been filled with saline solution to cover up for the missing liquid. I've had just about all I can take of Janine Jones and her baby-killing, murdering bullshit, and a grand jury decided the exact same thing in 1984, when she was found guilty of murdering Chelsea as well as endangering seven others and was sentenced to 99 years in prison. Good fucking riddance. But wait a minute, we're not done yet either. Remember Rolando Santos, the documented heparin overdose? A year later, in 1985, they convicted her of that too, and they tacked on another 60 years in prison on top of the 99 she was already serving. So maybe in 2136 she can get out of prison, but I don't think that's going to happen. While in prison, she said, this is the last quote from her because I'm sick of talking about this piece of shit lady, 
She said, <laughs> she said, I look back now on what I did and I agree with you now that it was heinous. My only defense is that I was not of sound mind before 1994. Not an excuse, just a fact. That is when God in his infinite glory and wisdom granted me sound mind and I accepted him as my savior. So don't worry everybody, it's okay. At least 10 and maybe up to 60 children died because of this woman, but it's all okay because she knows God now. Get the fuck out of here, Janine. I'm tired of talking about you. Have fun staying in a Texas prison for the rest of your life with your miserable delusions. And we're going to go talk about some interesting psychology stuff for a little while because I need a break from you. And I think it's a good idea to know how to spot people like you from far, far away. I gotta give a little nod to my source for this week, found a very well written and very detailed article from Texas Monthly about this case, which I'll of course link in the description, you know I will, but before we go, I want to go over a couple other things with you. I want to add just a little bit extra to the show. Yeah, this is primarily a comedy show, I'm mostly just gonna be trying out jokes and saying things in funny ways to make an otherwise horrible story easier to listen to, but I think I can do a little bit better than that? I also want you to leave here having learned something, so I'm going to start adding in some of the larger takeaways that I get out of reading these stories every week because there's a lot of interesting psychology things that tend to come up and sometimes I realize things about life in general that might be helpful to somebody else. Like in today's story, the way Janine speaks can be a really telling thing as well. I found an article about it a few days ago that I can't seem to find anymore. I'm trying to remember the verbiage that it used, but... There are certain details that you can look for when talking to someone that might help you catch them in a lie. Nervous body movements, fidgeting, lack of eye contact, blinking too fast, not enough, maybe they have a higher pitched voice or can be a little bit too expressive, hesitating, speech speech errors, 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 speech errors, errors. Like, <laughs> I got Charlie, and it's always sunny in my head right now just saying all this. And it's, you know, it's another really interesting thing to look out for. Could be um, a lack of contractions is a really interesting to me. For, for whatever reason, liars don't tend to use contractions when they're speaking. They'll say things like, I did not, or I have not, or, you know, things like that. They subconsciously think it makes them sound more credible, like kind of like, yeah, I kind of like how Janine talked today. Fucking nailed it! Speech master over here! They might also lash out or change the subject rather abruptly. <laughs> oh, I'm on it today. And here's what I think my biggest takeaway from today's story is. The best thing you can do for yourself, the best gift you can give yourself, I think, is the ability to be wrong. If a person has a mindset where they're right no matter what and everyone else is wrong, I think they're doing themselves a massive disservice in terms of learning potential. If you're always right, how can you ever be expected to learn anything? You already have all the answers. Why bother learning anything new? That's a really reductive way of thinking, and it ultimately does more harm than good. Kind of like cognitive dissonance, the inability to accept certain things as a certain way because it contradicts an internally held belief. I think that was sort of my issue before this week. The evidence for something can be right in front of you, but because your brain doesn't want to believe that the world is actually different than what it believes is true, your brain's like, fucking no, uh-uh, no way. It's a real problem, and I think it's important to be aware of it in other people as well as yourself. Do a little introspection every now and then. Take a back seat and say, okay, what if I'm wrong? What if it's not how I thought it was? 
But also try to avoid the confirmation bias too. Don't just look for stuff that confirms what you already believe and leave it at that. Look for the other side. Look for stuff that doesn't confirm that belief and then approach it from you know, whatever it is from both sides. But that's just me. That's been my approach to those weird life questions that come up from time to time and it works for me. I've learned a lot about myself and made appropriate changes to old habits and ways of thinking, so maybe if it worked for me, it could work for someone else. So there you go. I want to try out a little segment like that for a few weeks and see how it goes. And I think that's a pretty good place to wrap it up for today. This was a pretty long one. If you like that story, if you like that story, or just like listening to the sound of my voice and how I tell stories, do me a favor. Review this show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Tell your friends. Tell your pets. Tell strangers in the grocery store about it. Tell somebody that I'm doing something over here and that they might like it. And that it's free. You don't have to pay a cover charge to be here. I just do this for fun at the moment. Next week, I have another female serial killer that I'm going to tell you all about. I think it was Dorothea Puente or Joanna Dennehy. I haven't decided yet. I'll read through those stories again and figure it out. But either way, it'll be a crazy story with twists and turns and weird quotes and all sorts of other things going on. Maybe we'll see the actual return of Zardok next week. Maybe I invent a new character to test out. That's the beauty of it. I have no idea either, but I'm going to have fun figuring it out in between now and next Sunday, and then you get to hear what I've been up to all week. So until next week, everybody, watch out for the Zardakians, and stay kind. Stay kind.